0: The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room far from Nashville's Music Row became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back today with part two of Bruce Hedlam's conversation with YouTube sensation turned five-time Grammy winner Jacob Collier. We left off our last episode with Jacob talking about what it's like to perform to an audience of thousands of people after growing a fan base entirely online. In this episode, we'll hear Jacob play the piano and go deep on music theory. It's honestly pretty extraordinary. It isn't every day that a musician of Jacob's caliber takes the time to sit down at a piano and really break down his creative process and the theory behind it. He also talks more about his new album, Piano Ballads, and about how the old standard Moon River Taught him the power of centering his avant garde arrangements on emotions. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Edlam and Jacob Collier.
1: One of your early experiences on stage, I read, was you sang in a couple of operas. I think you sang in Fatsik mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, Magic Flute, but then you did Benjamin Britten, The Turn of the Screw. screw. Yeah. And you said, I think it was his harmonies, like, blew your mind or something. Now, I thought I would have to sit here and pretend to understand Benjamin Britten. Yeah. And that was making me very nervous. <laughs> and I do like the interludes from, from Peter Grimes. Oh, yeah, aren't they amazing? Since I didn't know, I reached out to two people who do know. One's my brother, Phil, who's a conductor in Europe. Actually, he used to teach at the Royal Academy. Oh, he did? I think, yeah. And my other is my brother, Dave, who's a, he's a music theorist at Eastman. Wonderful. So I said, what do I possibly say about this? They say Britain's harmony is not defined by something in and of itself. But here's how they relate it to you. And maybe this is why you liked it so much. Your negative harmony Mm -hmm. uses what theorists call inversion. Tell me about negative harmony and how you use
2: it. So negative harmony is quite an ancient idea. It's an idea based in polarity. So the idea that what goes up must go down you know a tree has branches that grow up and roots that grow down and it's, it happens in nature and so I had a teacher of mine when I was at the Royal Academy for a couple of years his name was Barack Shmool and Barak studied with a very very great saxophone player called Steve Coleman and Steve Coleman is just one of the deepest musicians who's alive and he has got very deep into studying certain musicians uh, there's one that he cites his name is Ernst Levy who wrote a book called A Theory of Harmony and, and I've dipped into this book and it's, it's dense but fascinating <laughs> and, and the, the idea is actually really simple you know it's, it's the idea that if you have a melody that goes you know and you reverse every direction it, what goes up must go down so the reflection of this is this right so when you say the reflection, if there's a full tone up, it's a full tone down. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you put a mirror at this note, and this is upper tone, so that goes down a tone. Right, like that. So the, the, the idea is very simple. So Steve has has thought about this as a melodic idea. You know, so a, a phrase, you know, like that. You know? And and if I flip that, it's yeah. That's the reflection, that kind of thing. So it's a really amazing uh, melodic device. But for me, I mean, you, you know me, I, I'm all about the harmony. So I think the thing that I gravitated towards the most was was that this, in, in, a, in a harmonic sense. So if I'm in if I'm in the key of F major, in classical music, you think, well, how would I get to F major? Well, I would get there from a C7 chord, right? If I say five one. So what Ernst Levy describes as one possible axis of reflection is the idea of you take, you take F and C, which is our kind of home key, and this, this F, and, F and C, the, the note exactly between F and C, so th- them as a duo, that becomes the, the, the reflection point, the mirror. And if I reflect C7 over that axis, then you come up with this sound. So, uh, and I mean you can imagine when I, f- when I first said this I thought oh man that's so thrilling the, the idea that the, the reflection of the dominant chord is as it's as led to the key because if you think about C7 this note which is a B flat this wants to sink that's where it wants to go Right, so you got this note wants to, this note wants to sink, that note wants to rise, and in this, that note wants to r- sink. You know, so that, so the the gravity is is equivalent. That that's the crazy thing is that it's the same amount of gravity to F, but it's reflected. So it, in classical music you might have, or even in jazz you might have something like. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a six two five one cadence. And so if you do that with negative harmony you get this amazing like that it's it's a different flavor so you say how do I use it well i i'm not i wouldn't claim to have the deepest understanding of of Polarity and all of its permutations musically, but I think that the concept of that really got me excited because, in a very um, basic way, it's it's plagalizing every perfect cadence. And when we mm-hmm. see plagal cadence, it's like a, a four-one instead of a five-one. So five-one is this, and four-one is this, right? It's almost like a, a more of a, a gospel sound. So rather than going, yeah, right, it's going like what James Taylor would do you know or Joni if if Joni goes <laughs> what she doesn't do is she goes right It's plagal. It's a plagal cadence, and then it's a plagal cadence on the plagal cadence, and you can even do a plagal one on that, and then on that. So you can actually do like instead of right and I, that's so cool to me. Four 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 one, and so. Do I think about this when I'm improvising piano battles on stage? Consciously, no. But what I have done is familiarise myself with the materials of what that feels like in my own experimenting at home and practising, and understood that the feeling of that being different from this is like a brighter version, and then the negative version is darker bright and dark that's a universal thing Mm -hmm. you you wouldn't meet a person or a creature or any living thing that does not understand bright and dark it's like it's such a huge thing and obviously these things are very subjective but musically talking if I arrive at F major from there it feels very different from if I arrive from there I mean oh, it's such a, it's so exciting That that's the negative one and the perfect one being you know so what's the negative version of the dominant seventh you would describe it as like the four minor six chord so in F it's B flat minor six Like that, or you could also describe it as the 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 second degree of the scale, half diminished. So G half diminished to F, rather than C. Half
1: diminished is the
2: that's the Tristan chord. Yes, yeah, it is. It is indeed. And that's something Benjamin Britten used a lot. Britten had a way with harmony, which still to this day, I mean, no one has touched him for the thing that he has done. But he was one of the only composers in the 20th century who didn't go down the 12-tone. Wrote, you know he didn't go down the, the serialism route he didn't go down the kind of neo neoclassicism route so much and he, he didn't go down the kind of austere a- atonal stuff or highly mathematical stuff he he just kind of continued a, a harmonic language on his own terms and it was really based in kind of folk music because mm-hmm. of being english and, and also just i think just being so deeply involved in the harmonic language of what had just come before him but i thought turn of the screw had a 12 tone theme it does have a 12 tone theme which is, uh, yeah, it, this... Uh, that's like the opening theme, which I just absolutely love. But I, I guess when I say he didn't embrace 12-tonality in a total form, it was it was part of his arsenal. Mm-hmm. He would draw on it to tell a, a story, a harmonic, harmonic story, based in his otherwise kind of fruiting language. But the 12-tone thing, there were certain people who wrote music purely based in sure. that as a form... And I think Britain had a way of alchemizing all that was going on around him, but he didn't do it for that being the sake of it. He didn't live and die by that conceptually, and I think he was able to pull from it and tell these stories. And the thing with Britain, to my mind, is, you know, he'll do this chord where it's as much about the notes that aren't there than the notes that are there. You know, a chord like that. I don't know whether Britain's used this chord, maybe he has, but Now what do you just tell me what you're playing there. Well that so that chord you could describe it as like an A, an A dominant chord with mm-hmm. a ninth, but it's a very strange voicing. An A dominant chord with a ninth is this, right? But if you do just that, there's no E. There's no E. If I did that, it's much more palatable. But he would. Britain has a way of these things shining here, and your ear hears the gaps. It's like these big gaps, and and yeah, there's there's a, there's a, like an, an austerity to it, like a, a, a cold water nature to it but there's also a huge power and a delicacy and and he's just able to command such extraordinary tapestries of colour and sound and I mean another thing that was going on in the 20th century even before that I think Britain used beautifully was the idea of kind of bitonality you know you have one part of the music in one key and then another part in a totally different key and if you had there's something very sweet up here yeah, there's really kind of this amazing It's an amazing feeling Because your, your mind is led in one direction by one And one direction by the other And there's one aria in the tone of the screw Called Marlow, which I sang as a boy Yeah Marlow. And it's this beautiful, like really haunting, innocent kind of thing, and and beneath it, especially towards the end of the production, all sorts of really emotional, deep chords going underneath the surface, and it just maintains this purity. So, you know, I didn't understand those chords at that age, and I mean, even to this day, I haven't sat down and gone deep in analysing them. But the feeling of being a part of those chords as a member of the cast has stayed with me for life, and. The idea of being that part of the chord or outlining that part of the innocence of the chord and the storyline. It's reference to the darkness underneath. I mean, it's just so rich and so beautiful. And I think that I approached that music at that time completely without analysis because I was mm-hmm. 12, you know, and I was missing a bunch of school. It was really exciting. I got to skive off <laughs> lessons and go to Spain and and learn this really dense, rich music. And I, and I really kind of, I felt like I emotionally really understood it. I, I understood it, you know, far more than a lot of the, having mates and doing stuff that kids do and having to socialize with children. I didn't get that as much as I understood Britain. With Britain, it was like, oh, I understand what's going on here. I, I can I can emote and relate to this as a form. Now, you said it's a different chord the way you're playing it in the
1: right hand and in the left hand. Are they related harmonically, or are they two completely
2: different thoughts? Well, they can be related harmonically. I, I think normally there's a sense of gravity that each holds. And... In, in the world of, world of Britain, this has the D major has all of its own gravities, and C has its gravities at the same time, and they don't have to connect. There doesn't have to be like, whoa, whoa, you know, it's just so it's so boring when you think about harmony in that in that way. So. And I think I used to. I used to think of everything as a scale. Everything as one unified sound that everything had to be connected and analysed vertically. Mm -hmm. But now I think I'm getting more of a kick out of horizontal harmonic thinking, which I suppose is more in line with someone like Bach, who writes these amazing four-part things. But he doesn't think, I don't think he necessarily thought about like, okay, F major, C major, D. He thought this melody is going here and this melody is going here. They connect in that way. And harmony is a byproduct of melody in in that situation. We'll be right
0: back with more from Bruce Sedlam and Jacob Collier after a quick break.
3: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City branch subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
0: job is where America goes to hire
3: that's T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat.
0: We're back with more from Bruce's conversation with Jacob Collier. You have
1: a video, you have many wonderful videos, but there's one with you and Herbie Hancock. Oh, yeah. That, that I'm thinking of now watching you play. Whereas he describes, and I'm wondering if this is related in playing jazz he says we'll play the arrival chord in the right hand and then play the chord that's getting there in the left hand. Yeah
2: there's this tune that Herbie taught me uh, called Don't Follow the Crowd which is a killing tune and there's one moment in the tune where it goes like that right so you could harmonize that as a good old-fashioned A flat seven but Herbie talks about the idea of it being a C7. Oh, it's just so great. And then up to there. So he thinks about the right hand being essentially disconnected from the left hand, because the left hand's going 5-1, and the right hand's going C, D-flat, just chromatic. Right? And, and Herbie would say that that, that comes from the, the 20s, you know. The, the kind of the, this... So, you know, rather it's than very chromatic, yeah, cr- chromatic yeah. approach rather than um, you know functional. But I, I would, I think my instinct is always to try and think of things vertically first. So I, I was trying to think, how can you fit? How can you make that fit? You know, because you've got a dominant seven and a major seven, so you actually got all three of these notes at the same time. But that's it's great, you know, and and I, I like it because it, it tears the rule book up. And I think that's also why Herbie likes it, because Herbie's such a maverick, you know, that guy. He, he loves. He loves getting inside the cracks of these things and finding chords that feel right. I mean, the first time I ever met Herbie was in, in Montreux in Switzerland in 2014. And the first conversation we had, was just, it was like, hey man, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And within two minutes, we were talking about minor ninths. It was just like, hey man, <laughs> love minor ninths. This is just minor ninth that sounds like this. You know, it's really gnarly kind of interval. But if you put a minor ninth in, in the right place, then it can be so beautiful. So say for example this. It's such a be- beautiful, austere sound, you know, or if, if I spread that out, you know, these kinds of bubbling sounds. You know, there's so many cool things that you can do with that interval, which you could say is the reflection of that interval. And a major seventh is also a very important interval. But it was just fun to sit in this restaurant with Herbie over chicken, and we were just talking about minor nights. And it was one of the moments where I thought, what is my life, you know, mm-hmm. right now? Sitting with Herbie Hancock and talking about minor nights this is crazy, you know. Over the years, Herbie's become a really great friend, you know, and, and also a mentor. And I think I've learned so so much from him. And sitting down and listening to how he thinks and talks and plays, and so many life lessons with Herbie. It's not just musical lessons. It's not sitting down. Herbie shows me a hip new voicing. It's, it's you know, Herbie talks so much about you know permission and fearlessness and and how music comes straight from life and all these kinds of things. So a minor ninth. <laughs> It, it, that's not. That doesn't exist in a stuffy old textbook in the back of a library in some you know godforsaken music theory book. It exists because it holds tension in the present now. That is the sound now. What? what? what how do you use that? It's so, it's so, so expensive. You know what an expensive thing to use? And if I'm, if I'm singing, wise men say, right. That is a minor ninth. Well, I could, also, I could equally do, which is that minor right there. And suddenly, it's, suddenly we get into, into, into Britain territory again. You know, the idea of things that, you know, Britain, Britain would use a chord like that, instead of like, you know, it's like a chord like this. You could call this a D11 chord. Case and sister G. Well, why is that chord so emotive? Well, you could say, you know, because blah 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 has notes in it, blah, scales, blah, blah. but that's not why. It's emotive, I think, because the G is already home. It's already home. Uh, Britton did this wonderful arrangement of, um, well, I, maybe, yeah, I think maybe even composed it. It's called the, the, the New Year Carol. And he goes, That chord, why is that so special? Because well, he could have just done... Yeah, She kind of does a similar thing. But no, he keeps this, he keeps it, it's like a constant, it's like, oh, I'm it's a steadfast, the steadfast at home. And even though we're not at home, we've got this it, we're still home at the same time. And you've got minor ninth, there's the sacred minor ninth, they're fighting, but it's, it's resolved and unresolved at the same time. I mean, that's such a human feeling. Oh, it's just beautiful. And I mean, that. And so, so, where does an understanding of those sounds come from? It doesn't come from reading books. It doesn't come from taking music classes. It comes from listening with an open mind and then playing with the things that move you about it and just and getting inside a sound. And, you know, and, and again, it's just, a lot of this stuff is so subjective, but I think that that's one thing that Briton does so well is he controls tension in a very sweet but yet very dark way where he's able to kind of leave space for your ear to intuit a part of the harmony that is maybe even not there or feel something visualize common tones throughout music but i don't think he thinks about this in a theoretical way i think he just i think that's just his soul you know Mm -hmm.
1: you know one of the interesting things about this album is you can hear the audience reaction Hmm. and there are times you're improvising and they don't know where it's going and i'm not sure you can even hear it but there's a sort of tension yeah and this happens in a lot of concerts but more so in yours because they don't know where you're going suddenly you begin, say, Let It Be. Hmm. You really
2: took a long time to get to Let It Be. People are like, whew, that's a relief. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think I decided necessarily that that was definitely the song I was going to play until I ended up here. I thought, okay, I may as well go, when I find myself, you know, and that was all. I guess what interests me about
1: it is there is this tension in popular music. And we're talking about Benjamin Britten, we're talking about Herbie Hancock, but you're very much in the pop world as well. There's always been this tension between musical knowledge and ability on one hand and simplicity and what is thought of as sincerity yeah, on the yeah. other hand. You know, progressive rock, punk rock. And yeah. People prefer punk rock. Right. Country is famously called three chords and the truth. Yeah, right. Are there some songs that you simply can't do this level of reharmonizing on? It surprised me, for example, you did Tennessee Waltz. hmm which is very kind of traditional, yeah. it, it's probably
2: a one four five.
1: Yeah. Are you in the middle of some songs going, you know, the song can't take
2: this? Yeah, there, there are definitely moments where a song does not guide you to being reimagined heavily harmonically. Um, there's one song on the album called All at Sea, which is maybe my favourite song on the album. Um, it's a song by a guy named Jamie Cullum, who's just one of my favourite musicians <laughs> from, from England and it's funny I didn't do any reharms well I did a couple of sneaky ones but but I didn't fundamentally reharmonize that song because for some reason maybe it was my mood or whatever but but the, yeah the song it just kind of I'm all at sea when no one can bother me oh God my rules if only for Day. It, it doesn't need you know it doesn't need that it, it, it just it sings and one of the joys of improvising is that you have to take yourself as how, who you are on that day so I remember when I did Tennessee Waltz that was the fifth show in a row that we'd done we'd done I think it was two Copenhagen shows a Sweden show one more show which I'm forgetting now and then Oslo was the was the final of the five shows so I was exhausted but I was also very kind of hyper and my really dear friend Stian Karstensen, who's a totally unbelievable uh, Norwegian button accordion player who also plays banjo and cabal and pedal steel he actually brought his pedal steel for this and and I asked him to, to, to sit in on the song Tennessee Waltz is a fun place to start because it's a song that kind of everyone knows especially musicians you know really really know that song That, I mean, it's such a great song that actually it can survive some pretty severe departure. But I think for me, the the thing I like about that performance with Stian is that both of us have this way of climbing around and all sorts of weird, funny things. But the song is like a North Star. You know, it guides us back and then we'll go off and do this, and then Sonny will land at the song again, you know, and and it it brings us back home. So, you know, but then again, I think if I thought, oh gosh, I really shouldn't do this to the song, or oh no, that would be inappropriate, you know, or whatever these these principles are i think less is less is always more or you know you really have to you know, treat things things with respect and don't, i don't i don't think that's a that's that's not how life works and i also don't think that that is a sound way of learning i think that you have to give yourself permission to to try it all i think when i was a teenager i i kind of you know ir, irrespective of the song sometimes i would take these things way 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 out mm-hmm. and i think now i'm more inspired by the idea of kind of controlling the the density of the language in favor of the songs that are being sung and the stories that are being told through the songs. And I think that's one of the things I'm enjoying about growing older, actually, mm-hmm. is, you know, if I look at myself 10 years ago when I was 18, so much of the language was so new and I needed to push it that far. And you know, if someone, had, I mean, people did try and tell me this, I didn't listen, but if people say, you know, just calm down, don't do less chords, just, just play the simple song, you know, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, that's like telling Stevie Wonder not to make where I'm coming from. It doesn't work. You can't make someone different from who they are. And it's not in anyone's best interest. I mean, why am I making music? I'm not making music for other people to like it. I'm making music because I must make it. It's part of my skeleton. It's part of my expression. And I think that it's only in giving people the permission to be their full, authentic selves that you end up with a person that is actually grounded in the truth of who they are. And again, when you grow older, one of the things about growing older is that your understanding as to your language and how to use it, I think it deepens and grows as you become older. So I think I'm now much more inspired by... I mean, you could say simple chords, but uh, triads, I mean, simple, you know, these simple things I, I really uh, adore, uh, uh, like the clarity of these kinds of sounds. When I was 16, all I wanted to do was think was, you know, oh, wow, yeah, these are such cool sounds, you know. But I'm glad that I went through that, and I'm glad that I've come into the triadic world with, with those experiments in tow, because it means mm-hmm. that if I'm playing you know, wise men say or whatever, there might be a moment where I do sprinkle a chord that's quite expensive followed by a simple chord. And then, then you get into real, like really painting with, with that
1: language. It wasn't a question of should people have permission to experiment because, of course, they always should. Hmm. It's the degree to which a tune can absorb that mm. kind of treatment you know rhythm changes are a lot of the big yeah. uh, jazz songs are built that way um you know right. I, I, i'm thinking one of because i do like country music and i and i like the pleasure of the three chords you know one of my favorite versions of a country music song is um do you know ray charles doing uh, you're my sunshine i think i've heard that yeah oh it's yeah. fantastic Stunning. but i don't think he does much I, I think it's a lot of he just sings the song it, it's a lot of rhythmic stuff. Yeah, it just moves like nobody's business. Oh, but I no. don't actually think he does much substitution. Yeah, yeah. But to me, and maybe it's almost a self consciousness that mm. do I like music that's too simple? Yeah. Oh you no, know, I, do I, I like... don't think that, that, that. I don't think there's there's such a thing as that. It's hard as a listener sometimes. You know, I mean, I because those the pleasures are very kind of well regulated. You know, yeah. Willie Nelson's a nice guitar player. There's a lot of fabulous guitar playing in country, mm. but but it's based on that foundation they're not throwing in a lot of half diminished no no and
2: i I love it for that reason yeah yeah i I think certain songs can survive being Mm -hmm. kind of messed messed with and, and other songs do kind of just fall apart
0: we'll be right back after a quick break with more from jacob collier snag a job is where america goes to hire
3: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders, you can enter at tmobile.com/slash-unconventional-awards. That's tmobile.com/slash-unconventional-awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christofferson.
0: How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash Boar's nest. We're back with the rest of Bruce Ellen's conversation with Jacob Collier. I wanted to ask you about
2: Moon River because you once said that's a song that taught you a lot. Yes. Yeah. What, what did you mean by that? It's another, it's another one of these songs like, like um, Can't Help Falling In Love where... Every, every note in that melody is in the major scale. That song taught me. It's very simple, but it has such a journey intervalically. So when I say intervalically, it's like the arcs of the melody are so lovely. <laughs> is it? It's like a rainbow, you know. It's like a line mm-hmm. that's drawn like this, and those shapes are so strong that I think it held my language together a little bit, um, because you know I came with that song ravenous for some chords, and I thought oh, I really want to take this song out on a journey. And then there are times where the song will dictate, no, no, you you stay within my world, you stay within the, the key that it's in. And then there are moments where where it 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 almost physically. It says, fly, go fly. And I'm thinking, okay, whoosh. And all my, all my language comes out. And I just think that kind of almost spiritually, I think that song is so beautiful. And it's just the idea of the, the wonder of of the world opening up before your eyes and almost having this, this going on a journey as, with, with a companion. Wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. It's, yeah, it's like it's imagining a world that that is endless and large and big and that you could share... We're after the same rainbow's end, waiting around the bend, my Huckleberry friend. It just describes a feeling. And I think some of my favorite songs describe a feeling, either through the lyrics or just through the, the chords and the melody, rather than being about, um, it's, it's about this person or it's about this experience. It's, it's about a feeling of the world because that, that song, it just it opened my mind to a lot of stuff. And, and also, I think harmonically, I, I really kind of pushed the boat out down Moon River and um, really kind of wanted to find new things the final verse of that eight eight minute arrangement actually is in a it's in a key that does not exist on the piano it's like between e E flat and e oh you did um... and it's actually not on the piano It's it's a quarter tone away and but there's a portion at the end of the arrangement after that where i i move between all these keys um that aren't on the piano, and it's something I've been very, very excited by and interested in for some time. But I, I really, in in a in a musical sense, the, arranging that song gave me a lot of understanding as to how to achieve things in a microtonal world, but based in and based in the emotions of a song that kind of held it together. So, how does that work? How does the what's the emotional effect
1: of switching to? Not a semitone, but a semi-semitone, a microtone. Yeah, yeah, microtone.
2: Well, it's the same feeling as changing key or, chromatically on the piano. Um, you know, if I'm playing Moon River, right? I have, I've changed key or whatever. Um, um, moon, moon River. Ah. right so oh it's a new world it's it's, it's just a different thing uh, oh. oh well what's different about these keys they're, they're, it's different different color different flavor different feeling so so with microtonal keys it's it's the same thing it's just it's just even more subtle so you know if if you for example are aware of only the major scale And you go, right, this all sounds good, or pentatonic. And every style of music in the whole world, pretty much, um, incorporates the idea of this pentatonic scale. It's a a universal thing. And if I go, I say, oh, that doesn't fit. That note is not in my language. Oh, it feels really out and strange. How could anybody ever use that note? (laughs) Why would you do that? But actually, you can do it. Say if I take the E and I pivot, then I'm there. You know. So the same is true with with microtonality. I think right now, based on the last 500 years of musical instruments that have been built in 12-tone equal temperament, which is the idea that every semitone is the same size and there are 12 notes in an octave. There are lots of other ones. You know, there's 31 note equal temperament, which is a. a I'm actually a huge advocate for. I think it's really good. And so instead of, it's like. You know, etc., and and all these individual notes—they're all it's, it's, its the same thing. You can still pivot. You can pivot to notes that feel outside. You know, I can pivot from to even though that note feels oh my god, no, that's wrong. It's a wrong note. It's like no, it's not wrong. And there are all sorts of ways you can you can pivot. You know, using things like just intonation, um, which is like a, a system of tuning based in physics and harmonic ratios and things like that. It's just that our ears aren't awake enough to it. In the same way that if we are pentatonic people. And someone goes, "Ah!" You think, well, that's just never gonna be in my system. It's not in the system, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But and assuming sometimes we have a way of thinking, that's wrong, it doesn't fit into my system. You know, what a damaging and dangerous concept. Politically, conceptually, philosophically, energetically, to say, you don't belong in this because it it doesn't fit in my system of understanding. And think of the things, think of the opportunities we have to connect with each other and ideas. But we shut them down because we are close to our own systems. And and all of us do this. I mean, I do this in many aspects of my life because I'm a human too. But I try not to because I think that music, I mean, which has taught me so many things, definitely teaches me to welcome things. And the idea of not being a wrong note, but more just like an opportunity to go somewhere else is way cooler as a way of thinking than thinking, well, that's just wrong, rule it out. So when you did Moon River did you
1: change it electronically like post production or did you adjust the instruments or was it all vocal? It was all one?
2: vocal. So oh, okay. It was a, yeah it's about 100, 100 voices at once. It's a massive sound. And mm. um that's what I mean, it's the reason why I think the voice is the most kind of important and versatile instrument of all but yeah I just sang it in as I wanted to hear it. Having perfect pitch does that allow you to hear the in between notes as well? Um, well it, it's funny cuz you know perfect pitch is one it, it's, you, you would say, oh, you know, it's absolute pitch. I can pluck a note out of the air. But I mean, it's just based on the notes that we've been given. So we, we've been given 12 available notes. And I think now I'm, I'm excited to kind of expand my, you could say, perfect pitch into more than 12. Have you played uh, Harry Parch instruments? Well, so I've never played one of his instruments, but Harry Parch is one of the most kind of important pioneers of microtonal instruments. There, there have been so many people over the years who have attempted to solve the problem of how do we make our chords sound really good, but also put them in equal temperament. So, yeah, I mean, not to get too nerdy, but every note in the universe has a set of overtones. So if I if I say, mm, which is a B flat, if I go, mm, I don't know if you can hear, but it's going, uh, overtones. so th- this, is naturally occurring. So if I go, oh, in a cathedral, which people did hundreds of years ago, no doubt, um, you hear those overtones back come back at you. And so within every note, is actually inherently a major chord. It's crazy. So this is why I think major feels consonant to human beings, is because that sound is, if I go, Whoa, it's in the it's in the chord it's in the note it's in every sound. so of course our ears seek to hear that The thing about the piano, which is a compromise harmonically is that the third that D, the third on the piano is actually it's actually really sharp on the piano in real life in, well, in physics you could say everything's real life but ooh. See, it's really sharp, but the the pure tone, we call it the justly tuned third, is 14 hundredths of a half-step or a semitone flatter than the piano is tuned. So this is crazy to me. What does this mean? Well, it means that you can pivot to microtonal keys. And this is is the thing that really freaks me out. (laughs) So if if I take the D... and that's now my tonic, then the, my entire chord is 14 cents flat. So now if I do... That's a D major chord. The third of that chord would itself be 14 cents flat. So now my F sharp is... Which is quite a lot flatter than the one on the piano. And then that itself can become... A major chord. And then the third of that is 14 cents flat. So by this point we are... What's my, what's my math? 42 cents flat, which is almost half a semitone flat. So... This is how, at the end of Moon River, and also in other arrangements I did, I actually moved between microtonal keys. I'm not just jumping there. I'm pivoting using just intonation ratios, harmonic physics-based intervals, to guide the ear to a place where it doesn't know or sense anything is wrong or untoward. Because it's, it's the same way as pivoting to A major from C major, but using the E. i I don't feel like i've gone huge it's not like going you know it's not like you're not Mm -hmm. jumping to a foreign place you can do that but the thing i'm really 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 excited and interested in right now is how do you unpack microtonality but completely in functional chord systems and functional harmony because there's people who make microtonal music that sounds really unlistable and is very intellectual and is just really jarring and it can be very beautiful as well but I think for me, the idea of using these justly tuned chords and intervals, pivoting using those sounds—I mean, that's crazy, man. That's so exciting. You're now on the hunt for ghost notes. It's (laughs) between the notes. What's next for you? Well, we haven't spoken about this too much, but I'm I'm in the middle of a quadruple album. This is besides the Piano Ballads album, Jesse Volume One, Two, Three, and Four. And each of the volumes of Jesse has been a different. It's like a different musical genre, different musical space, different set of sounds. And so it's like a 50-song, sprawling, kind of insanely ambitious project that I began four years ago now, or over four years ago now. I wanted to lay down the foundations of my own musical understanding so that at the end of the fourth form of Jesse, I could like start my career. That was like my plan. (laughs) And the way I wanted to learn was by collaborating with all my favorite musicians, musicians I believe to be the most kind of extraordinary, important people um, to me, and some some of those people are old legends, and some of those people are ten years younger than me. But I was really really ravenous to collaborate because I'd just made this album in my room and I taught it for three years on 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 my own on stage, and I, was, I just really wanted that, that human connection. So I I started this project. So Jesse Volume One was an, an an orchestral album, and by no means was it classical music, but it was it was just it was music, just music made with an orchestra. And my mind and instrument skills too. And so there was that. The Take Six were on the album. Laura Mavula was on the album. Uh, all sorts of amazing people. And Jesse Volume Two was was more of a, a sort of a folk record, I suppose, a record based out of the, the guitar and writing songs. And, and that album was packed with collaborations too Sam Amidon, Catherine Tikal, Leanne La Havas was on the album, Jojo, Umo Sangare, from Mali, was on there and, and she's extraordinary. And Steve Vai, the legendary rock guitarist, was on there. Um, jesse volume three was more of a kind of r&b phew, I, I i hesitate when i say pop but it was the most pop album i've ever made these songs had electronic production four on the floor sort of things as, as well as you know really kind of dense experiments and and that album was uh, t-pain and jesse reyes and tori kelly and mahalia ty dollar sign kiana LaDay, some really extraordinary people rhapsody so what's next for me well jesse volume four is on the horizon and that is it's been a couple of years in the works, and more excited by it than I can possibly say it's been a challenge to kind of contain the overwhelmingly dazzling potential <laughs> of what it could sound like and be in my mind because there's just so many things but it's it's finding its north it's finding its form and it's 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 really getting to the point where it's 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 a- approaching a, a finished state now I think within a few months it should be done so that's cool one of the things I'm most excited about is I actually recorded every audience on tour for the album and so it's like a hundred thousand voices singing in harmony on the record. And mm-hmm. I think to me, that's so exciting and feels philosophically very correct because I began my career layering my own voice on top of itself to create harmony, right? And it's almost like I posed the question, what is harmony? What is connection? If harmony is the connection between things, what am I seeking here? What began as a journey in isolation, and it's by no means ending, but it's, it's, it's set definitely the end of an era, this, this Jesse era, the last five years of my life. What, what have I learned? Well, I've learned that Everyone in the world has a voice. And what happens when you bring those voices together, that is, that's as much harmony, philosophically harmony, as I could possibly dream of conceptualising. That is a feeling. That is a north. That's the special thing. And so I'm really excited to incorporate their voices onto the album. I'm then excited to tour that album with the audiences themselves singing what they sang. You know, there's this amazing kind of loop that, that goes around Yeah, I'm working on so many other things besides Jesse Volume 4, some of which I can't talk about. In fact, most of which I can't talk about, but with all sorts of different people on many different stages and different environments in many different forms of art. And I think I'm just fiercely ambitious, but I'm also just trying to stay as in the present as I can uh, with what I can pay attention to and give my energy to right now. And right now that's finishing Jesse Volume 4 which I'm so proud of and so excited to share and, and finishing off this world tour this year which is Australia New Zealand and Asia and a, a little bit of Europe for good measure and then you know soaring into the campaign of the album which is creating videos and creating narratives and having conversations and and there'll be a, a tour for that album I'm sure in, in, in the future and after the album comes out and you know then I, I think my the, the biggest challenge for me is, is leaving a blank page so that things can take me by surprise you know because I could plan the next 10 years of my life and actually Feel every day so I think it's, it's almost a matter of just thinking well let's just leave room for things to come and surprise me and people to come and surprise me and, and for me to be swept off my feet a little bit you know by the things that happen in life that you, you can never plan for but it's almost like improvising a ballad you go on stage or you, you, you step forth in life and there are certain things that you can hold on to there are certain parts of language and knowledge you understand and then, then you have to just let it all go and see what happens
1: well thanks for spending this time with us you swept us off our feet. It was oh. Just wonderful. Thank oh, you so th-
0: much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Jacob Collier again for sitting down to talk to us about his career and about his process and about some insane musical dishes. You can hear piano ballads and all of our favorite Jacob Collier songs on a playlist at BrokenRecordPodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, Jennifer Sanchez, our editor is Sophie Crane, our executive producer is Mia Bell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats.
3: I'm Justin Richmond. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.
0: In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in The Burden Podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.